The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 21, O Lord, in your strength the King rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. Let's pray. Father, we have a chance to sing and rejoice and exult in your strong hand that saves. We just sang about delivers us from all our sin and sorrow. What an amazing promise. The song that we just sang, Lord, it, it, it's, it's catchy and it moves me in how it's put together and that's because you've made me in a certain way. You've made us people who resonate with, with tones and, and beats and rhythms and music. So it catches me in that way and maybe some of us here, it catches us and, it, and it's, it's interesting and attractive. But for all of us, God, what an amazing and alarming, beautiful truth that you save your people from all their sins and sorrows. How great they may be, your grace is greater still. That is true. Bless your holy name. That is who you are for us by mercy and grace, not by anything in us. This is a glorious truth, a glorious reality that you have saved a people who don't deserve it at all. But you have truly, honestly, all together, right on through, through everything over everything, past everything, you have delivered us. And you will bring us into glory one day. Bless your name. We turn to the scripture now, and we see some of that. Some of that in, in some interesting interactions, in some, some different light, in some interaction with a man who doesn't get that at all and with a woman who really does. Father, would you help us to think about, over the next two weeks, really help us to think about both of these people. To think about what it is that's, that's in the middle of them that they get and don't get. And who it is that's laying it out, this Jesus. Help us to think about him and to see him and to understand him and to be drawn to him. In him you are working this great salvation. Maybe even today for someone who doesn't know it, but for us who do know it, you, you are working it out still. Would you bless us? Would you meet us and bless us with a deeper, wider, longer, higher understanding of your great love for us in Christ? Show him to us today, please, Lord. Move us in whatever way we need to be moved with the truth of the gospel that changes everything for those who believe. Show us Christ in the Scripture. 
give clarity to my, my words, give focus to my thinking and to our thinking here that we would follow you, hear you, understand you, be, be changed by you and towards you, and then towards the world. That's our prayer. So Spirit of God, would you accomplish that? Would you illumine the text and build the people of God? It's in Christ's name that we pray. For His glory that we pray. For His, His church's growth that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 7. Leading up to where we are, up, up to verse 36, we have seen several paragraphs where Jesus is, is discussing and teaching about different aspects of John the Baptist and his ministry. It began, you'll recall, with a question raised by John, who's in prison. is a question that he asks through messengers, are you, Jesus, in fact, the promised coming Messiah? And he wonders that because Messiah is supposed to eliminate evil, but John's still suffering under evil. Are you the one or not? I'm confused. And Jesus answers by pointing the eyes of the messengers out to see all that's been going on and to say, look, the kingdom has begun, it has started. I am miraculously at work to change things, not to eliminate evil quite yet, because this Messiah comes first in meek mercy. And he goes on then to explain that John's ministry was to prepare the way for this Messiah of meek mercy. John came, he said, as the messenger who introduced Jesus by preaching about sin and repentance and calling people to their need, showing people their need, the, calling them to brokenness, calling them to, to a conviction of sin so that then the meek Messiah who offers mercy has a context into which he fits, makes sense, isn't presumed upon or misunderstood. But, as Jesus continued, most people wouldn't want any of that. Wouldn't want John, wouldn't want Jesus, wouldn't want any of that because they just want their own way. The world, in fact, he says, is going to largely reject the ministry of John and largely reject the ministry of Jesus, but not completely so. There would be, this is the very end of last week, there would be some children who are born of wisdom and would show the wisdom of God, would show the goodness and the rightness of his way by their fruitful, changed lives. That's the end of that section, which connects then into where we are this morning with two people who are going to illustrate the two different responses. One, a Pharisee, offended, put off by this meek and merciful Messiah. And one, a woman who is completely changed by him. As I prayed earlier, we're going to, this is a long section. We're going to spend two weeks in it, actually. Not completely divided, but more so this morning on Jesus as he deals with the Pharisee, and more so next week on Jesus and how he deals with the woman. They bleed into each other, but it's, that's more the emphasis in these two weeks. We're going to deal with this section over the next two weeks, but this morning, the main point that I'm, I'm moving towards is, is this. Let me put it in a sentence. Jesus is available to all, giving salvation and new life to all who believe. That's what I'm getting at this morning. Jesus is available to all, giving salvation and new life to all who believe. I'm going to work towards that with two observations, as I said, kind of more leaning on how Jesus interacts with the Pharisee. But let me read the whole passage, 
36 to the end of the chapter. It's Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and they went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A, a marvelous story about which we are told very little by way of detail. We don't know anything about where, when, or why this meal happens. It's a formal meal of some sort because that's how formal meals were eaten, reclined around a small table with feet kind of extended away from the table like spokes off a hub and a wheel. Simon the Pharisee has invited guests, including Jesus, who by this point has, has a reputation. He's well known. He's done some amazing things. So it's probably a meal in his honor. Clearly, Simon is not one of those Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus, but he also, from the story, obviously isn't a follower, a friendly follower of him. Probably he's invited him over to check him out, kind of evaluate who is this guy. Brings him into his own house, invites him to this dinner, and somehow or another the woman is present, and we don't learn much about that other than that this is a big, socially awkward mess. We are told she's a woman of the city, a sinner. Probably means she's a prostitute. Certainly well known to everybody. Simon knows who she is. Knows she's a sinner. Sees her foisting herself upon his party here in a very awkward way. And the grammar of verse 38 implies that this was not quick. It was ongoing. It, it had, had some length to it. It was a deal. She stands there. You picture all these men are lying down around this table, and she stands there at his feet, just 
almost above them, standing there, weeping. Her tears falling on the feet of Jesus. And the word used there exaggerates it. It it makes us think of, of rain wetting his feet. She's weeping as they lie there and look at her. And then she lets down her hair to, to, to wipe, to wipe the, the wet off, which is sensually insensitive. In that culture, women would have kept their hair bound up, and to let it down was alluring. And she's not being alluring here, but she's just kind of accidentally forgetting herself, and she's doing something awkward, kind of like if we were, we were at a party and a woman used an undergarment to wipe up a mess on a table. She's not trying to, to reference anything, but it's just kind of awkward. She's weeping, and she's wiping, and she's weeping, and she's wiping, and then she's kissing the feet, showing him homage. She's kissing his feet. And then she finally gets around to doing what she intended to do. She brought this ointment, really. It's like a perfume. Expensive, probably the most valuable thing she had. She pours it out on his feet, a beautifying act of honor. Now, if you think about this logically, there would have had to have been some order to this, from the standing to, to the kneeling. She probably didn't put the ointment on before she wiped off it with her hair. There's, there's logically some order to this, but it's presented to us in just all this one continuous ongoing event. It just happened and happened and happened and happened and happened. It's a mess, and it's awkward, It interrupts the meal. She's the center of attention. And Simon said to himself, and we would probably preface it kind of like this, oh, for goodness sakes, if this man was a prophet, for crying out loud. That's that's how we would would say that. If, If he was a prophet, he would know what's going on here. This is ridiculous. This woman, of all people, here, in my dining room, of all places, doing this to him, of all people. Her hair, her lips, her perfume, her hands, all over him. The holy man? No. No. And then Jesus speaks up and tells Simon a story revealing that he does know all about her and he knows all about Simon. Which takes us to the first observation. I'm going to make two observations this morning. The first one, actually rather simple and easy to miss, but important. Just something about the character of Jesus. The first one, Jesus is available to all, but with a good agenda. Jesus is available to all, but with a good agenda. The fact that this even happens is noteworthy. It's easy to miss it because obviously the event is so gripping and the story is is the heart of it, but the fact that it even happens tells us something really important about the character of Jesus. He is available to all 
all sorts of people, particularly he's willing to be approached by and engaged by sinful people. He's not put off by sinful people. Jesus does not stand away from, aloof from, keeping his distance away from, and then maybe shouting at or proclaiming to condemning words that call them to order their lives properly before he can commune with them. That's not how he is. This is quite obvious. He knows who this woman is. He knows her past. He knows the awkwardness of the situation, the impropriety of being touched by, fawned over by her. There's a good chance that He's risking becoming ceremonially unclean here, and he's at least getting all this ick all over him. You think about the awkwardness of, 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 just, of lying there while she does this to you. He knows all this. He knows what people are going to think about it, what they're going to say about it, and he welcomes her and lets it happen anyway. That's obvious. And, we should note this, he's also available to the other sinner in the story, the Pharisee. In Jesus' eyes, all of these people are sinners, the Pharisee included. He and his guests, different types of sinners. Refined sinners clean and proper and orderly, the opposite of mess. They, these are people who have it together. He has a position and he's very religious and he's very righteous and he's very upstanding and he seems very concerned to choose the right before God always. But he's still a sinner. And even in this brief account, we see a little bit of that breaking through. Get to kind of read between the lines a little bit, but you see coming through the, 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 the nice outward facade, we see, particularly in Jesus' words, Jesus is, is the most important person, the, the biggest public figure here at this dinner. And the common niceties offered to any guest, this Pharisee skips. He invites him over. Jesus points this out. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss, a, a polite kiss of greeting on the cheek. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This, this is not quite required. He didn't have to do this, but he sure should have. And he sure didn't. And he sure didn't just forget about it. He deliberately says, I want to establish some parameters here. I'm not going to stoop and become ingratiated to you and, and to show you that I, that I accept you and that I approve you. You come, you sit over there, I will remain the head of the table. And the event happens, and we see him judging Jesus in his mind, clearly loathing the woman, judging her too. It's all subtle sins. Nothing nearly as big and atrocious like the woman, but he is a sinner too, of course. Jesus knows it, of course, and what does he do? He comes over to his house, quietly takes his seat at the table ungreeted, submits himself to the evaluation, and then engages Simon by his first name. Simon, I have something to say to you. And what he says to him is not laying him low in condemnation. 
He's drawing Simon out. He engages with Simon to ask him a question, to get him to think for Simon's good. He's trying to explain the woman, sure, but he's also trying to explain Simon to Simon for Simon's good. This is Jesus in the midst of, this is what it looks like for Jesus to be a friend of sinners and to eat with sinners and tax collectors and the like. This is Jesus in the midst of sinful people, meek and merciful with them. Is this how you think about Jesus? And let me ask it this way. Is this really how you think about Jesus? We all know this about Jesus, but is this what you believe Jesus to be? For yourself and and for other people, when, when you explain him to other people. This is Jesus available to sinners. It's, it's one of the sweetest and most attractive things, and it is, it is critical. It is, it is step one of the process of a person rightly looking at Jesus to, to engage with them about what Jesus is going to say, is to realize this is Jesus who's welcoming to me. He is not lording on high, but he is open-handed and welcoming to me. Hmm, maybe I should consider what he has to say next. This is foundational. It's extremely important for closing with him and for staying closed up with him, Christian. Because it is not uncommon even for us who are already Christians to think, I know Jesus is meek and merciful. I know he's available to sinners. But if you knew what I knew about me yesterday or last week, you would probably say, you better get that straightened out first before you come back to Jesus. Christian, even we struggle with this, is this how you think about Jesus available to you, not put off by your sin, not distanced from you because of your sin? He's available to sinners, big ones like prostitutes, refined ones like Pharisees, people like you. Jesus, there are two, maybe poles might be a good way to think about it. I think we probably resonate more strongly with one or the other. I resonate more with this one. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who is to come. He is the messianic king sent by God to reign over the kingdom, exalted at the right hand, ruling all of the earth. Yes. He is the Holy One. The psalmists call out, He is the one that the the gates of heaven part. Who is this King of glory? Yes. That's just one pole. We can't lose that one pole. He is God. And, this is the other pole, these things need to be held in some tension because they are both true. And at the same time, today, while it is still called today, this one who is the Lord, who reigns on high, who is exalted, is also meek and merciful and available to you in the midst of all your yuck. That is hard to hold together. 
I find myself, which one do you lean towards? I find myself leaning towards, towards the high and exalted one. He is meek, merciful, and available to you. Come to him. You have to believe that if you're ever going to come. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will not come to him with your weariness and your burden until you actually believe, actually believe he is merciful and meek and available, invites you to come, will engage with you, will speak with you, call you by your first name for your good. That's who he is. He is a friend of sinners with an agenda because he's actually a friend of sinners. We are easily confused today when we think about friends and people who love us and we turn that into, they just tell me what I want to hear and they tell me that I'm all good and fine and great. And anybody who says otherwise, not being my friend, not loving me. No, that's not true. You don't actually want that. If you're walking around the hallway with a gigantic booger hanging out of your nose and your best friend doesn't say anything about that, you feel A, humiliated, B, a little hacked off. Why didn't you tell me that? You let me walk around and humiliate myself constantly? You, you, of all people, you're the one who's supposed to tell me that. So it's a little bit embarrassing, yes, but I wipe it up and then I'm okay. Right? You want that kind of friend. You don't want the kind of friend that says, I'm too much your friend to say anything about that. No, you're not. That was very unfriendly. From the trivial to the critical, you don't need a friend who tells you you're good and fine, you're all right. You have no problem, Pharisee Simon. Jesus won't be that kind of friend. He is available. He is a friend of sinners with a good agenda for sinners. He will engage with sinners about their need for forgiveness. He will engage with sinners in a winsome, hope-filled, gracious, merciful, meek way that is also extremely clear on the need. You must be forgiven of your sin. I'm a great forgiver. You are a sinner. Let's talk. This is the initial element of, of the story. The fact that the story even happens reveals to us this, this great and marvelous, complex and deep character of Jesus that he is in fact not just the prophet that Simon's wondering about. He is, in fact, not just an, a human Messiah, but he is the Lord God come to reign, and he is meek and merciful. And he wants to draw near to every single one of us to deal with us for our good. We struggle sometimes evaluating how do, I, how do I hold on to my sin and a, a kind Jesus? And, and you, just, you just throw those two things together and say the kindness of Jesus faces my sin and helps me to deal with it. 
do not, do not, do not buy the lie that he has anything to do with you until you've fixed your sin. That can't happen. You'll never fix it. He says, come to me. Christian, come to him. If you're not a Christian yet, come to him. He's available to you to bring you into what the woman knows, which is the second point. The agenda. Here's the second observation. Gospel forgiveness. Gospel forgiveness. Fueling loving devotion to Jesus is our need. Gospel forgiveness fueling loving devotion to Jesus is our need. When Jesus speaks to Simon, he's talking about the woman, but really he's talking about the woman so he's talking about Simon. So we need to see what he means Simon to see here. This is, the, this is his agenda for us. He wants to help Simon express on his own lips verse 43. The one, I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He's trying to get Simon to see that and to say it. That's the one who will love the money lender more. That's the point of the story in verses 41 and 42. Great love comes from knowing that one has been forgiven a great debt. That's the point. It has to be known because obviously if the debtor had just, had just forgiven them, the two of them, neither one of them knew it, neither one of them would love him very much. It can't be silent and unknown. It has to be known and experienced forgiveness of a great debt. That's what generates great love. Less forgiveness, less love. No forgiveness, no love. That's the point. Simon gets it. When he says that, so Simon... Why aren't you characterized by loving devotion to me? This woman, she shows us what, what loving devotion looks like. Now, we do have to note that there's nothing particularly admirable about social awkwardness. There are plenty of people in the Bible who are lovingly devoted to, to Jesus, and they have nothing like this. So exactly what she does and exactly how she does it is not the point. It's what, what those actions that are her actions in her place and her time, what those actions show us is the point. It shows us love and abandon of, abandonment of self-preservation and a giving of all that she has, not a holding back to protect her own reputation and cover her own behind. She thought out the part about bringing the most valuable thing that she has. That was conscious, that was choice. Here is all of me. And then she didn't get in the way of her emotions and try to maintain distance when she was overcome by, by the mental realization of what I am as a forgiven person. She let that all fly too. She didn't hold it back to preserve her reputation. So her heart and her head her thinking plan, and then her emotions, her heart, if you can divide it like that, her heart and her head are his. 
That's what we need to be looking at, not exactly how she did it. Heart and head, his. Stark contrast to Simon, right? Who's rude to Jesus? Who establishes himself on the high ground so as safely to evaluate and judge? Clearly no love, no devotion. So Simon, why not? That's the implied question. And Jesus could keep talking to him and say, we've already covered it, you could say it yourself. You can answer this question, Simon. Jesus addresses it, though. Verse 47, Therefore, seeing this woman and what she is, how she is, therefore I tell you, you could draw this conclusion, you see two debtors, one leaping for joy beside himself. What do you conclude? One knows he's been forgiven a great big debt. And the other one hasn't. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And Jesus isn't talking about forgiven right now in this moment. He's stating, and grammatically this is emphasized, he's stating something that has already happened, just like the story. It's not that the man in debt leaps for joy and is therefore then forgiven his debt. Other way around. He's forgiven his debt, and because he realizes he's been forgiven his debt, then he leaps for joy. That follows. Very important to understand. Jesus is not saying her kisses, her, her wiping of her tears and the ointment, therefore she's forgiven. When he says, for she has loved much, for is the reason that I can say this. For, because, look, she loves much. That's how I know her sins are forgiven. Very important we get that straight. He clarifies it one more time so we cannot miss this. Your faith has saved you, not the tears and the ointment. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her many sins are forgiven. And I say gospel forgiveness in this point to emphasize how it is that Jesus forgives many sins. Forgiveness happens in the manner described by the true gospel. Your faith has saved you. Your faith alone has saved you. Not your faith after you've done all that you can with your, your goods in, in hand. Your faith alone. Faith removes guilt. By receiving what someone else, Jesus, by receiving what Jesus did to wipe away our sin, I could say this to you, and so I'll say it, and then I'll explain it. So rejoice if you know that. Now, I know I can't expect you to right now rejoice because, because of how we're talking about this and how I'm explaining this. There's not any, any emotional fervor in it. But these things, this is the logical line here. 
Rejoice if you know that. Know it in the experienced. Know it in the understood. If that is real of you, then rejoice. That's the order. And here we've arrived at the point. Gospel forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness of sin, that then fuels this rejoicing, this giving of my head and my heart to Jesus, happily and freely, without reserve, that is the agenda that Jesus has for people. That's our need. Put it in another way to connect to last week. Gospel forgiveness that is received and understood and that then produces the fruitful life that is the different life of the Christian that establishes, that proves the rightness and the goodness of God in His work. Justifies, this is verse 35, justified wisdom by the lives of her children. That's our need. That's Jesus' agenda for us. You can follow that line through. It is it is logical and it is always the way God works. He, he sends Christ. He applies Christ to you, to us. We see that, receive it, understand it, and then are filled with a rejoicing joy, a glorious full joy, a different life. And anywhere along that line, if, if, it, if the chain's broken, you need to step back and say, what happened? What's wrong there? Which is how Jesus means this to work in the life of Simon. This truth that I'm talking about here has two uses. First, for Simon, it has a diagnostic use. He's asking Simon to use this as a diagnostic tool in his life. This is how this works. But Simon, it hasn't worked for you. Why not? Something hasn't happened here. Why not? Think about that carefully. Little love for Jesus? What does that mean? You can understand this. You, you, you got the analogy, Simon. Little love for Jesus. In fact, no love for Jesus. Why not? Little thankfulness. Why not? Not moved by him. Why not? Follow this back. Examine yourself. The most likely cause is that you have not experienced and understood the salvation that is in Jesus by faith. Perhaps because you approach Jesus like a Pharisee, thinking that other people need to be forgiven. Maybe. And if so, all I can say to you is that you're not a Christian. I'm not, let me be really clear, I'm not saying that to every single person here, clearly, okay? I'm not saying that to you in particular, because I don't know you in particular. I mean, I know a lot of you, but I don't know everybody here. But if, if you sit there and you think, I don't have much of this love and devotion, head and heart his, I don't have much of that, and fundamentally, I think, really, it's because I'm a pretty good person, and maybe what he's talking about, this forgiveness that applies to other people, 
Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. That's Jesus' use of this in Simon's life to point out to him a great big hole. He has presumed himself good enough, and he isn't. And the proof that he isn't is in the fact that he has no fruitful, changed life. Now, we live in a world and in a religious culture where emotions and emotionalism sometimes run high. So I have to think about this carefully. I'm talking about loving devotion, and we see this great emotional response in this woman, and we need to think about this carefully because just being teary-eyed and emotional about Jesus in general isn't actually proof of anything. The particular focus here is on gospel forgiveness. The understanding and experiencing of the gospel of grace as explained by Jesus and the Bible. My sin, my hopelessness, my brokenness before God met then by Jesus a beautiful, complete salvation offered in Him that I receive by faith alone. That, that applied to you giving you great joy. That's what I'm talking about. So not just, not just a happiness or a rejoicing over the Savior in some way or another. Rejoicing over the Gospel. That's the key focus. So the first use of this is, is as a diagnostic to help us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Do you have loving devotion, this head and heart response to Jesus' gospel? And if not, you should ask yourself, am I in the faith? Simon. But secondly, this is a useful aid for us in our growth. Because, and this is where maybe I, I reel back in, some of us who, you are a Christian and you're thinking, I'm not really very emotionally charged up about this. What's he trying to say about me? Let me kind of reel that back in a little bit. Because it is common, unfortunately common, for Christians to live without this sense of head and heart belongs to Him. And my life as I consider Christ and consider who He is for me and what's happened to me in the salvation, my life is not characterized by joy and an abandoning of myself to Him and to His cause. That's not characterized by me. Did you just say that I'm not a Christian? That's not true. I am a Christian. Okay. Okay. This chain from understanding and receiving comes joy. It could be 
Something here has happened to you that you don't understand. Don't live in the understanding of. Don't live in the reception of. You could be, you could be like a debtor forgiven a debt that he's unaware of. So Christian, or unaware of at this moment, let's say. You look at this and you say, I, I see her response. I hear you talking about this, and, and I, I want a life that is one of, of devotion, that head and, and heart are his. I, I'm filled with, with a love for him, and I, I'm colored by joy over him and thankfulness for him, and what he's done for me, but it's just not really there. And, and this is common to us as Christians, unfortunately. If you are in that moment, what do you do with this? Well, you notice that while this serves as a diagnostic, it also explains what fuels, what fuels such love and devotion. Knowing, understanding, receiving, I might now add, walking in the light of what God has done for you in Jesus this woman is captured by forgiveness. Men and women, are you captured by forgiveness? Are you aware of the depth and breadth of your sin and the greater depth and breadth of the forgiving love of Jesus for you? I'm going to come back to this and talk more about it next week when we consider the woman. But for this morning, what we, we have to say is that the gospel is true. You are forgiven by faith in Christ. If you seek, if you sit there and, and you, you seek in a, in a good way, you seek more devotion, more affection for, more experience of the affection of Jesus for you, I will point you at the gospel and plead with you and pray for the Spirit to work in you that you would see the depth and the beauty of it. Saved from all your sin and sorrows. All of them. Do you realize the scope of them? Do you ever sit down and actually think about, occasionally, I, I kind of think, I write them down sometimes, think about my, my shortcomings, my issues, my faults, maybe a particular sin that I struggle with, and the fact that that's covered. that you will not answer for that. Does that fill your mind? Tragically, that often does not fill our minds. But what fills our minds are, are the concerns of this earth and all of the ways that we, that we are in trouble, that we are in peril, that we are failing, that we are outcasts. 
Perhaps you are convinced that God is, is angry with you because of that sin. The gospel, Christian, the gospel is true. And what fuels devotion, head and heart being his like that of this woman, is the experiencing and the understanding, the realization of, I am forgiven. Christian, you're forgiven. Christian, your life is made new. Christian, you have a future that is forever different. He will never leave you, Christian. He has promised always to bend every single thing that happens, every single thing that you fear and are burdened by. He is bending all of that for your good, Christian. He has promised, he has told you and promised you that you sit in the palm of his hand, that you will never be taken from it, and he will carry you safely all the way to the land of promised rest where there is no longer any fear, no longer any tears, no longer any death, no longer any decay, no longer any sin. That's you. You right now sit in the midst of all of that, perhaps in abundance. And in the midst of sorrowing over that are meant to rejoice and abandon your life to this Jesus. And the only way you get there is by remembering the gospel. That you are forgiven and made new. You've got to preach that to yourself every morning. Because we leak. We pour it in the top and it runs out the bottom. You're not good to go on a, on a once a week or a, a once a month watering. It runs right through while we are still in the body. Every day. Every day. You use the diagnostic test maybe once or twice, but then every day you use this reality, this, the connection in this, in this passage here, you use this every day to to lift up your heart and place it on top of this solid rock truth. You are a child of God. And that will move you away from living as an underling in the world. <laughs> I, and as I, I say this, and I have to say right along with it that this is the work of the Spirit of God in us. I'm not preaching a little bit of next week's sermon already, but I should stop. <laughs> <laughs> a little preview where I'm going next week. One of, the great, one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit is to press into us the assurance of our salvation. And I could write that with a capital A, the assurance of Most of us live, and this is going to sound maybe stupid to you because you are really convinced you're a Christian, but I'm going to say this and maybe work on it a little bit next week. Most of us live doubting that we're actually Christians. The stupid part is you're going to say to me, I know, I don't doubt that at all. I know I'm a Christian. No, I mean, I mean more than that. I mean that you don't think of yourself as child of the king. 
blessed beyond all measure. Safe and secure from every harm. You don't really believe that. And that's not an accusation. What I'm trying to hold out in front of you when I, when I say that is not an accusation by any stretch. But to say, the path forward into a life like this woman, here am I, here's my life, here's everything I have, all my valuables, here's my dignity laid at your feet, poured out, I don't care what they think of me, I love you. The path to that is assurance. I'm a forgiven man, woman, boy, girl. I'm forgiven. I'm new. That is a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But he takes truth like this to press it into you. As he presses into the gospel of grace and the forgiveness of Jesus for me, for you, we are made different in how we view ourselves and how we view him. And lastly, very briefly, because I know I'm out of time, how we view other people. We view other people more like he views other people. Part of the Pharisee's problem is his utter disdain for Jesus and this prostitute. Because he's better than she is. And if Jesus knew that I'm better and that he's better than she is, he'd be more like me. And Jesus is saying, you get it all wrong. Unfortunately, you're not enough like she is. When we begin to see the whole spiritual landscape rightly, we comfortably interact with Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes like Jesus comfortably interacts with and welcomes with an agenda, but welcomes and is available to people. Because they're not any better than I am. I'm not any better than they are. We are people. My ability to love them, to welcome them and to be available to them like Jesus with a good agenda that grows to we consider the fact that we are forgiven. I'm going to stop here and pray. Probably pick up there next week. Let me pray. Father, Father, would you Maybe for some here in the room, would you press upon them this diagnostic element? Cause them to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. And maybe for those who know they aren't, would you press upon them the hope of gospel forgiveness to save? But for most of us, Lord, for most of us, would you again in this moment now, right now, Spirit of God, would you minister to us even in this moment now and cry over your people, mine. Saved. Not by anything you've done. 
but by my mercy and grace, I have saved you. Speak that over your people in a way that we can hear, in a way that grips us and moves us. Change us and produce joy, produce abandon to you and to your cause, produce in us love for others. Use the gospel to change your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.